to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an instructor of Old and New Testament theology and biblical interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. This is a podcast I've wanted to do for a while, and it's taken me some time to uh, get the research together to be able to present it. Um, I have a pretty extensive library in my study with a lot of original sources, and just over the years I've been able to accumulate a lot of books on the topic of Reformed theology. And I like to look at issues from a historical perspective, and I also like to interact with uh, current issues going on in this topic. And it seems like the big issue right now is provisionism or traditional Southern Baptist theology that's non-Reformed or non-Calvinistic. And over the past five years, I have interacted with this view. I have interacted with the leading proponents of this view. And so one of the charges that many people make against the provisionists is that they are semi-Pelagian. Semi-Pelagian. So in this podcast, what I want to do is I want to ask the question, is provisionism semi-Pelagianism? Or is it semi-Pelagian? Or is it even Pelagian? Because what they will say is this is a boogeyman that Calvinists will use to label or mischaracterize their view. And so what I want to do is I want to just interact with the theology of provisionism from their own statements and their own writings. And then I want to look historically at how reformers and those within the reformed tradition have understood both semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism. Now, maybe you're not familiar with these terms, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Pelagius was a monk in the British Isles uh, in the 400s that came to Rome and saw a lot of the immorality in Rome, and it bothered him. And so he basically had a theology uh, that was more behavior-oriented. Basically, he believed that humans are born neutral, that there is no original sin inherited from Adam, that basically humans are born as a blank slate. Uh, You can choose to sin by imitation, like you can imitate Adam, what Adam did in the garden. Basically, you can choose to sin or choose not to sin based upon your environment, but there's nothing inherently within you that you're born with as a condition, as a depraved nature that would lead you to actually commit sins because of a nature that you have. And so Augustine, the church father, interacted with Pelagius and the followers of uh, Pelagius in this issue of Pelagianism. So Pelagianism is the idea that there is really no need for grace. Humans are born basically inherently neutral. You can choose to sin or not sin. And so this has been denounced as a her- outright heresy uh, within church history by numerous church councils. A semi-Pelagianism, on the other hand, is a modified view that basically says that the human will is weakened. There is still original sin. The human will is still fallen, but it's not so fallen that it can't make the first move towards God when presented the gospel. And so what I want to do in this podcast is interact with the statements from provisionists and then look at what those scholars within church history have defined as Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. And I want you to 
make the the judgment. You make the the final decision on what you think. I'm going to give some conclusions because there's a lot of labels and mischaracterizations out there as far as what the provisionists believe. So what do provisionists affirm, or what do they believe, about moral and spiritual inability of fallen sinners? Do they believe in what we as Calvinists would call total inability? Well, traditional Southern Baptist scholar Adam Harwood, he's probably, along with David Allen, those two are probably the leading scholars within Southern Baptist circles that are promoting a provisionist or a traditionalist theology. And so in their book, this is from their own words, uh, there is a book that was edited by David Allen, Aaron Hankins, Eric Hankins, and Adam Harwood. It's called Anyone Can Be Saved. And Adam Harwood, in the chapter, Commentary on Article 2, The Sinfulness of Man, says this. He says that traditional Southern Baptists deny both incapacitated will and inherited guilt. Now, that's their main thesis. They deny an incapacitated will. In other words, they deny bondage of the will. They deny spiritual deadness in the sense that mankind is unable to trust in Christ unless God first regenerates. And they also deny inherited guilt. He states that their theology, quote, denies the Calvinistic view that sinners are unable to repent and confess faith in Christ until they are first regenerated by God. So that's their key theology. We believe regeneration comes before faith because humans are dead in sin. They're morally and spiritually unable to come to faith unless God does a work to overcome that deadness. And so they deny that. That's Adam Harwood. Now, Leighton Flowers, who is another leading proponent. I'm friends with Leighton. I've interacted with Leighton over the years. Um, it's no surprise that he's the most prolific with Soteriology 101. And this is what he says. He says, we believe man has the capacity to respond willingly to God's means of seeking to save the lost, not that man would seek God if left alone. So Leighton Flowers argues it in a positive way. Adam Harwood says we deny moral inability. Flowers puts it in a positive light. We affirm the capacity of the human will to respond willingly. So basically, provisionist theology says man does not have a will in bondage to sin, but still retains that capacity to repent and believe. And so the question then becomes, okay, what enables that response to respond willingly to God's appeal? Okay, in our view, what enables the response is an internal supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings about an ontological change in the sinner to make them willing to come to faith in Christ because their will has been changed by sovereign regeneration. They're going to deny that. They deny any need for an internal supernatural work of the Spirit that brings about regeneration before faith. What they believe enables the response is the mere presentation of the gospel. The gospel appeal is sufficient to enable a response. Now, let's be very careful that we interact with provisionism and, and, and do not mischaracterize them, but accurately represent their view. They do not deny the necessity of grace. They would never say that there's no need for grace. But what they do is they're going to redefine the sufficiency of grace to be 
basically the gospel appeal, where we would look at the grace being an internal supernatural regeneration of the Holy Spirit prior to or coming before faith and repentance. What Leighton Flowers says is, quote, we believe our gracious God is actively working in and through creation, conscience, his bride, his Holy Spirit-filled followers, and his word to aid humanity in their conversion, to aid humanity. Okay, again, this definition denies the need for effectual sovereign grace internally. So what the grace is, is creation. God's given us creation to look at. God has given conscience. God's given the church to be a witness. And God's given his word. And those things are sufficient to aid, keyword aid, help humanity in their conversion. So creation is sufficient. The witness of believers and God's word is sufficient to enable a response. And again, I think the key word there is aid. These are merely aids or helps that God uses to enable the response. Because after all, in their view, humans still retain libertarian free will. And so ultimately, the autonomous free will of the sinner is what's going to make the choice. So God's not going to sovereignly regenerate a sinner and make them willing or overcome that deadness or overcome that inability and cause them to repent and believe God's merely going to help them or assist them or aid them with these appeals or with these gospel helps that aid a person. So the question is, does God merely aid or help sinners in their conversion? Or does God actually liberate sinners from their bondage to sin? And does he graciously grant repentance and faith? Now, this is another thing that they would say. So Leighton Flowers also says this. It seems only to be unclear to one who presumes that an additional work of supernatural grace is needed above that which is accomplished by the gospel itself, which begs the question of our disagreement. Is another work of divine grace besides that which the gospel accomplishes needed to enable a lost person to respond? Show me in the Bible where such additional grace is said to be needed, and I'll be the first to recant my perspective on this. Okay, this is their big issue. They look at us and say, you guys, you Calvinists, are putting an additional work of grace upon what the gospel itself does. The gospel itself is sufficient. That's all that's needed. Humans have libertarian free will. When the gospel is presented, you can now choose to repent and believe because you've been presented the gospel. There is no need for what they would call an external or additional or mystical work of grace in the heart and soul of a sinner that would ontologically change their nature to bring about a change so that they would freely come to faith in Christ. So he views sovereign regeneration as an extra work of divine grace. So what we would say is that the Bible is very clear that God uses both the Word and the Spirit to bring a person to faith. So we agree with them halfway. Yes, the gospel appeal is necessary. Yes, the gospel appeal is sufficient. Yes, people need to hear the gospel in order to believe. But yet, we take it a step further and say that's not enough. There still needs to be a work of the Spirit to do an internal change in the lost sinner to overcome 
that ability. And that work is effectual. That work actually accomplishes the change. It's not the offer is given, the gospel is presented, and then you're the one that determine whether you're going to repent or believe based upon libertarian free will. We believe in an irresistible or effectual um, change that happens because of the Holy Spirit. So let's just look at a few scriptures. Um, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, okay, these are key words, unless. Jesus often uses these unless words. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so there's an unless that Jesus uses there. Okay, so you cannot do something unless something happens. Okay, so let's just look at these. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see. There's an inherent blindness to the kingdom of God unless you're born again first. When God causes you to be born again, then you can see the kingdom of God. Then you can see your need for salvation. Then you can repent and believe. There's another inability. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You're barred entrance because of your enslavement to sin. So something has to happen. You have to be born again. And so the Holy Spirit's the one that does this. The Holy Spirit's like the wind. It blows where it's wishes. The Holy Spirit comes and grants that new life. So the Spirit has to do something in the sinner to overcome that inability. The inability is you can't see and you can't enter. So what has to happen? You have to be born again first. You don't believe and then become born again. You're born again first by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that enables you to see and that enables you to enter. Okay, what about John 6, 44 through 45? Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. We've spent numerous times on this passage of Scripture, but let's just bring it up again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, again, no one can come. There's an unless. There's an inability. There's this unless language. What can't you do unless something happens? Well, Jesus says you can't come. Okay, in John 3 to Nicodemus, he says you can't see, you can't enter. Here he says you can't come. Okay, this is inability. This is a moral and spiritual inability of sinners to be able to enter, believe, come, have faith, unless something happens. So what's the unless? Well, in John 3, it was being born again. Here in John 6, it's the Father has to draw that person. Okay, how does God draw that person? Well, in verse 45, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So part of the drawing is that God works through the Word 
to teach and to bring a person to faith. So yes, the gospel appeal, the word of God, is the means by which God uses to draw a sinner to faith, but there still has to be an internal working that brings about that change. Because John 6.63, if you go on down in that passage of Scripture, Jesus says in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Okay, so Jesus has spoken these words. You're being taught by the Father. You're being drawn by the Father. What happens when when, when you're being drawn by the Father, when you're being taught by the Father? Well, the Holy Spirit is giving you life. Okay, what does that mean? That assumes that you were dead before and you needed to be resurrected to new life. The Holy Spirit has to come and blow that regeneration in you to bring about that change. And then further down in that passage of scripture, Jesus basically says in John 6:65, he repeats that inability. He says, "No one that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father." Okay, same exact wording. You can't come unless something happens. This time it has to be granted. Okay, this is a gift. God has to graciously cause you or do something in you to draw you to enable you to come. So we believe that people are spiritually dead. They have to have life. They can't see the kingdom of God. They can't enter the kingdom of God. They can't come to Christ unless God does a work first. What's that work he does? He causes them to be born again. He grants them life. He draws them to himself. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians 2, 4-5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Okay, Paul teaches spiritual deadness. And then he says, God made us alive, which means we can't make ourselves alive. God has to be the active agent in making us alive because we were spiritually dead. How does this come? Well, nothing here is said about the gospel appeal. Nothing here is said in Ephesians 2 about man's ability to respond. As a matter of fact, Paul just makes it very clear that man is dead in sin. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about how you're in bondage to the prince of 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 the air, that you're walking according to the flesh, that you're walking according to the ways of the world, that you're in bondage to sin, that you are a child of wrath. There's nothing in this passage that says once the gospel comes to you, you have the ability to respond. What Paul says is you're spiritually dead and God has to make you alive. Now, how does he do that? Does he do that merely through the gospel appeal so that when the gospel is presented, that's how God makes you alive? Or is it an inward resurrection, new life, that overcomes the deadness? God has to make us alive. Acts 16, 14, we'll come back to this in a moment. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, who's doing the work here? The Lord is opening her heart. Here's the point, okay? Nothing is said here of her ability to respond. Once the Lord opened her heart, she was then able to pay attention. It wasn't like the gospel came to her and she paid attention and then once she received the gospel, then the Lord opened her heart. No, the Lord opened her heart first. Okay, let's just concede. 
Okay, let's just concede that in all these verses, John 3, John 6, Ephesians 2, Acts 16, that the grace of God was only the gospel appeal, was only the message, the, the word of God that the provisionists say. Okay. The question then becomes, is that effectual? In that, in all cases, does it guarantee a positive response? Is the word of God not only sufficient, but is, is it effectual to bring about that change? Now, the provisionists would say no. It's not effectual. It's not irresistible. It's only, God only enables that response, a libertarian response. Now, here's where we need to understand, because the provisionist will say there is an inability. Okay, this is very, you need to listen to me very carefully. The provisionists do teach that there is an inability. But the inability, in their view, is not moral or spiritual that comes from birth. It's not something inherited from Adam. It's not something you're born with that renders you hostile to God and unable to come. That's not the inability. What the inability is, in the provisionist view, is lack of information. You don't have the gospel appeal. You haven't heard the word of God. How can a sinner respond positively to what they've not heard? And the assumption is, is that when you hear the gospel, Romans 10, how can they hear without somebody preaching? When they hear the gospel, the assumption is that now they have the ability. It was a, the inability was it was a message they'd never heard before. But now upon hearing, now they're endowed with an ability they previously didn't have. The ability now they have is that they have the information that they did not have before. And that information, that gospel, that's gracious, that's Holy Spirit empowered, that, that comes from Holy Spirit indwelled apostles, is enough to enable a response. Now you can positively respond by accepting Christ or you can reject it. But there is nothing ontologically, and what I mean by ontologically is to the essence of a person, or fundamentally, there's nothing fundamentally fallen in the sinner that renders him or her morally or spiritually unable to respond positively. We would believe that from birth, because of an inherited sin from Adam, every single person is born morally and spiritually hostile to God, dead in sin, unable to come or please God, cannot enter the kingdom of God, cannot see the kingdom of God, cannot come to Christ, unless God does a work of internal grace to overcome or change that will to fundamentally and ontologically change the will to make the will willing to come. So the biblical texts state that no one is able to come. We must be given the grace to come. Now, I'll be speaking more about these texts before we come as we go along, but so let's just talk about the affirmations here of provisionism. How do these affirmations that the provisionists have, that the inability is merely lack of information, that there's, no, there's nothing inwardly, ontologically fallen that renders a person unable to come, and that the only grace that's needed is the mere gospel presentation. How do these affirmations differ from historic semi-Pelagianism or even Pelagianism? Now, here's the issue with historic labels. Okay, I've read extensively on this, all the way back to Augustine. When you read Augustine, he was arguing against Pelagianism. Pelagius. When you move to the reformers of the 16th and 17th century, they aren't arguing against semi-Pelagianism. 
they are still arguing against Pelagianism. And so what I've discovered is it really only seems that in the past 100 years have Calvinists really argued against semi-Pelagianism. Historically, the Reformers and all the way up to about the 1800s, you don't really hear the term semi-Pelagian when scholars are talking about it. They, they talk about the Pelagian heresy. It's always Pelagianism. So let's go all the way back to Augustine. In the first anti-Pelagian work, this is in 411 AD. This is a treatise on the merits and forgiveness of sins. This was Augustine's first work against Pelagius. He basically said that Pelagius focused too much on libertarian free will and that Pelagius denied the need for special grace. This is what Augustine explained, how he understands the fallen will. Okay, so this is a classic definition from Augustine that has been the standard Reformed or Calvinistic or Augustinian view of the human will. He says, quote, The free will taken captive does not avail except for sin. For righteousness, it does not avail unless it is set free and aided by divine action. Okay, It's very clear. The will is in bondage. All that the human will can do is sin. It cannot do anything but sin. It has to be set free by divine action. Okay, what did Pelagius say? Human will is not in bondage to sin. You have libertarian free will where you can do righteousness. So the question that we need to ask the provisionist is this. What exactly is that divine grace that has to set free a will that is in bondage to sin? Now, they're not going to agree with that question. They're going to deny the premise. They're going to say, we deny your premise, but let's just ask the question anyway. What exactly is that divine grace that's needed to set free a will that's in bondage? And what's their answer? We deny your premise. The will's not in bondage. We don't accept that the will is in bondage. God made humans with the capacity to make a libertarian free choice when the gospel's presented. The gospel appeal itself is the divine grace. There is no need for an extra supernatural inward mystical grace to regenerate a sinner. The only grace that's sufficient is the gospel appeal. That's enough. And so this leads to a fundamental understanding or question about human depravity. Let's ask the question, what has to change ontologically or fundamentally or inwardly in the sinner to grant a willingness to receive that gospel? Is it regeneration? Is it a work in the heart, in the soul? Or is it merely an outward presentation of the gospel that alone is sufficient to aid the sinner to respond? The provisionist will say, the grace that God gives is his word, creation, conscience, the church, all, these are all acts of grace, and they all come before, they're all antecedent, but they merely aid sinners in their conversion, because ultimately, you can make a libertarian free will choice when the gospel is presented. Now let's just talk about semi-Pelagianism. Let's understand semi-Pelagianism. The Senate of Arles in France, in 473, defined semi-Pelagianism. They basically said, the church, church council here said, quote, human effort is cooperative with the grace of God and that the human freedom of will is not extinct but weakened. Okay, that's, that's the key thing. The human will is not extinct but weakened. So the human will is not, as Augustine would say, in bondage to sin. 
dead in sin, incapacitated spiritually and morally, but the human will is merely weakened. It's a weakened will. And you can still cooperate when the grace of God is presented. When the grace of God is presented, you still have the free will to respond. So let's ask the question, do provisionists affirm that libertarian free will is active, yet weakened in the sinner? I would say yes. Do they affirm total inability, that the will is in bondage to sin? No, they do not. They view fallen man as corrupt with original sin, but they still believe that the libertarian free will is active. Now, I don't know if they would even affirm that the will is weakened. I don't know how they would understand that. I've never heard them say that the will is weakened. I, I've heard them, you know, we, we use terms like the will is in bondage. We, we, we use terms like total inability. And since they deny total inability, their view is libertarian free will. Um, so historically, I wonder if they would even affirm that the will is weakened. Because I think they would probably affirm that the will is fully intact and operates the same way it did with Adam before the fall. Now that would be close to Pelagianism. Now let's talk about the Council of Trent. Okay, so the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, Luther, Calvin, uh, the whole blow up in Europe, justification by faith alone. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church espoused their response to the reformers in the Council of Trent. Now that's 1547, the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent, while not actually labeled semi-Pelagian, what they argued could be historically considered semi-Pelagian. So this is what they say. Quote, although free will weakened as it was in its powers and bent down was by no means extinguished in sinners. Okay. So free will's weakened, but it's not in bondage. And then they also say this in the Council of Trent. Sinners, quote, may be disposed through his quickening and assisting grace to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that said grace. So you have to freely assent to grace. So grace is needed. It's an assisting grace. And that grace is needed. So the Roman Catholic Church never denies grace. There, there has to be grace. They, don't, they never deny the, the necessity of grace. The Council of Trent, Roman Catholicism, you need grace, but it's not a sufficient grace. You can cooperate with that grace. And so in Roman Catholic theology, the human will is not in bondage to sin, but it's merely weakened. The will needs assisting grace. So in Roman Catholicism, what is that assisting grace? Grace is necessary, but it's not sufficient and efficacious. What, what's the necessary grace in Roman Catholicism? Well, it's the sacramental system. God offers this grace to help you. But you as a sinner must avail yourself to this assisting grace through the sacramental system to be saved. Now I'm going to ask a question that may be offensive. How is this any different from provisionism? Okay. With the exception, okay, we're talking about Roman Catholicism, with the exception of the means of assisting grace. Okay, let's just talk about the means of assisting grace. Okay. In provisionism, the means of assisting grace is the gospel appeal that aids a sinner who has libertarian free will. Not a weakened will, but a fully intact will. So the means by which God gives grace in provisionism is the will's not even weakened, it's libertarianly free, and once the gospel appeal is given, you can respond. In Roman Catholicism, the will is weakened, and the assisting grace is the sacraments that aid a sinner 
to be able to be saved. So it's very ironic that in the Roman Catholic view, they regard fallen sinners as maybe a little bit more helpless than in provisionism because they at least acknowledge a weakened will, a somewhat fallen will, whereas I'm not sure if a provisionist would say the will's weakened. They may just say we have libertarian free will. Now, it's very interesting. When you read the primary sources of the Reformers, and you read them, very rarely will you find them using the term semi-Pelagianism. It's very hard to find the term semi. They often are arguing against the term Pelagianism. Okay, so let's just talk about some of these Reformers. Let's talk about Martin Luther. Okay, in his famous book, The Bondage of the Will, that was translated by J.I. Packer, um, J.I. Packer writes the introduction, and this is obviously J.I. Packer's understanding of Luther, but it's helpful. So let me just give you a quote from J.I. Packer. Quote, For Luther, no form of Pelagianism can be true. Fallen man can do nothing but sin. He is a member of Satan's kingdom, and in all his actions is under Satan's sway. His reason is blinded. His will is hostile to God. He wants only to sin, and the, thus the choice is always sinful. The deepest truth about him is that his power and exercise of choice is enslaved to sin and Satan, and his natural condition is one of total inability to merit anything other than wrath and damnation. So Packer is giving us a succinct statement about the thesis of the bondage of the will written by Luther, that fallen man could do nothing but sin. This is, this is ultimately what Augustine taught. So let's, let's listen to what Luther says in the bondage of the will. Luther says this, quote, Free will, or the human heart, is so bound by the power of Satan that it must be wondrously quickened by the Spirit of God. So great is the misery and blindness of mankind. So Luther's entire theology emphasized the need for regeneration to precede faith. Because the human will is enslaved to sin, is morally and spiritually unable to believe, the Spirit of God must quicken the sinner. Now, Luther and Calvin often use the term quicken, not so much regeneration. Uh, if you read the Reformers, they often use the term regeneration more to talk about sanctification. They often use the word quicken the way we would understand regeneration today. But the word quicken with Luther and Calvin was, what they would mean by quicken is, is the inward, spiritual, supernatural, effectual work of grace and one of the elect to actually bring them to faith all the way to Christ, to overcome that deadness, to overcome that total inability. That's what Luther would argue. Now, unless you think Arminianism is the same as provisionism, it's not. Now, here's where the confusion comes in. Arminians and Calvinists both start at the same place with the fundamental nature of humans being in bondage to sin. I'm not sure if you knew that. That's why provisionism is somewhat different, and we'll talk about this as we go on. But Calvinists and Arminians both agree on the fundamental nature of the human will being in bondage to sin. Now, let's just let's read from this horse's mouth. What did Jacobus Arminius teach? This is directly from his complete works. Uh, this is his public disputations on Arminius, on the free will of man and its powers. Okay, this is what Arminius himself said, quote, 
In this state of sin, the free will of man towards the true good is not only wounded, maimed, infirm, bent, and weakened, but it's also imprisoned, destroyed, and lost. And its powers are not only debilitated and useless unless they be assisted by grace, but it has no powers whatever except such are excited by divine grace. That's a strong statement. He says that the human will is imprisoned, destroyed, and lost, and debilitated unless overcome by sovereign grace. He also asserted this, quote, But in his lapsed and sinful state, man is not capable of and by himself either to think, to will, or to do that which is really good, but it is necessary for him to be regenerated and renewed in his intellect, affections, or will, and in all his powers by God and Christ through the Holy Spirit. Arminius very clearly taught total inability, that humans are in bondage to sin the same way that Calvinists taught, and that there is a need for regenerating grace to come inwardly to do that work. Now, how can a provisionist agree with Arminius? Does a provisionist agree that the will is imprisoned, that fallen man is totally unable to come to Christ unless insisted by divine supernatural grace? They cannot agree with Arminius. So for Arminius, the divine grace needed to overcome total inability was a regeneration inwardly by the Holy Spirit. So a provisionist denies that the will is imprisoned. They deny a need for regeneration to overcome that inability. The provisionist believes that a libertarian free will aids a person in their conversion when the mere gospel is presented. Now, it's very interesting because some people charged Arminius during his day with being Pelagian. Okay, so that's the, because he deviated from some of the Calvinistic teachings of the confessions of his day, some people said, well, you're, you're getting to become a Pelagian. And so Arminius quickly distanced himself from being labeled a Pelagian. In a letter to Hippolytus of Colobus, so he wrote a letter to Hippolytus of Colobus. This is what he wrote. Quote, this is from Arminius himself. Quote, Free will is unable to begin or perfect any true and spiritual good without grace. That I may not be said like Pelagius to practice delusion with regard to the word grace. I mean by it that which is the grace of Christ and which belongs to regeneration. I confess that the mind of a natural and carnal man is obscure and dark, that his affections are corrupt and inordinate, that his will is stubborn and disobedient, and that the man himself is dead in sin. So Arminius says, listen, I'm in no way a Pelagius. Don't label me a Pelagius because I believe in deadness, I believe in depravity. I believe in spiritual and moral inability. I believe that regeneration has to happen. Now, here's the difference. In Arminian theology, that regeneration or that, that grace is called prevenient grace, and it's merely an assisting grace that helps a person to be regenerated. It's not effectual. It's given to everybody. It's not just given to the, the elect, but it's still needed. It's not just the mere presentation of the gospel in Arminian theology. They believe in total depravity, total inability. There has to be an inward work of supernatural grace. Now let's talk about the Canons of Dort. The, 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 the Canons of Dort, the Synod of Dort met to deal with the Remonstrants who brought up the five points of Arminianism and then the Synod met and they came up with the Canons of Dort which articulated Reformed theology. And so under the fourth head of doctrine, 
they have some rejections, uh, the rejection of errors. So when they begin to give their views at the end of each um, head of doctrine, they give the rejection of errors. And so they begin to list errors that they would give. And it's interesting because in the canons of Dort, they never use the term semi-Pelagianism. That's not used in the canons of Dort. What's used is the word Pelagianism. And it's interesting that the, the reformers, Luther, Arminius, the canons of Dort, they were not arguing or trying to distance themselves from semi-Pelagianism. That, that word wasn't often used by them. It was more Pelagianism itself. So under the fourth head of doctrine, rejection number seven, regeneration and moral persuasion. Listen to what the canons of Dort says. The synod rejects the error of those who teach. Okay, what's the error? The grace by which we are converted to God is nothing other than a gentle persuasion. This is entirely Pelagian and contrary to the whole of Scripture. The grace that we are converted is merely nothing more than gentle persuasion. So they call that a Pelagian error. That it's not just the gospel appear, it's not just uh, gentle persuasion, but that there has to be an inward internal work. And what they do is they give the Scripture, Ezekiel 36, 26-27, as their proof text for that rejection of error. Okay, Ezekiel 36, 26-27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now what Ezekiel's teaching here is an ontological change in the sinner. A person goes from having a dead, stony, unresponsive heart to the Holy Spirit doing an actual heart transplant of giving them a new heart. It's not libertarian free will. When the gospel is presented, you can change your heart or you can admit that you need to change your heart. It's actually a Holy Spirit wrought inward change. Now, Robert Godfrey of Westminster Seminary has written a great book called Saving the Reformation, the Pastoral Theology of the Canons of Dort. It came out in 2019. Um, he gives commentary on the Canons of Dort. And this is what he says. He explains this position, quote, if the new qualities infused into the will of the regenerate do not represent a basic ontological change, then is conversion simply a matter of moral persuasion? The error holds that natural man can be persuaded by moral arguments and can respond to those arguments so that he becomes a spiritual man. This error, like the error of Pelagius, sees no need for grace beyond the grace given to man in creation. Okay, this is Robert Godfrey's commentary on the Canons of Dort, which I think is historically accurate. But is this not what provisionists affirm? Would not a provisionist say that the gentle persuasion of the gospel appeal is sufficient to enable a response? There's no need for regeneration or an ontological inward change to happen before a person believes. They would say fallen man can respond positively to the gospel presentation or a good apologetic defense of Christianity. And once the person uses their libertarian free will to respond to that persuasion, then they become a spiritual person. Then they are born again. But they're born again after they use their free will. The canons of Dort and most reformers would say that's actually Pelagian, not even semi-Pelagian. Okay, under rejection nine, regeneration, grace, and free will. The Synod rejects the error of those who te teach, quote, what's the error? Quote, grace is not antecedent or coming before. 
in the order of causality of the efficacy of the will. That is, God does not efficaciously help the will of man to conversion before the will of man moves and determines itself. And they quote Philippians 2.13 as their text, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, again, Godfrey explains this, Robert Godfrey. He says, quote, This error is labeled Pelagian because grace is not decisive but must cooperate on rather equal terms with the free will of man. It's not God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. It's not God doing this internal work to cause you to trust or overcome that deadness the way the Bible teaches. It's basically just when the gospel appeal is given, when there's moral persuasion, you can basically cooperate with that and use your free will. And again, the canons of Dort would call that Pelagian, not even semi-Pelagian. So let's just ask the question about provisionism. Provisionists will claim that God's grace is antecedent. It does come before. So they're going to say, yes, God is gracious. The grace does come before. But again, they define grace as merely the gospel appeal. It's not an effectual calling. It's not a regenerating grace. It's not a, an inward supernatural mystical change that overcomes the bondage of the will. And so Robert Godfrey argues that this view is Pelagian because grace is not decisive, but it can cooperate with free will. Again, a provisionist will claim that the gospel appeal is grace, it is gracious, it's God's initiative, and it does enable a response. But again, the sinner can still choose not to trust Christ. They can cooperate with that grace once it's presented. The gospel appeal is necessary and sufficient, but it's not efficacious. It can be rejected. In other words, God does not grant the gift of faith in regeneration. We know Philippians 1.29 Paul says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul tells us that to believe, to trust in Christ, has been granted to us, has been given to us as a gift. So why were you able to believe in Jesus? Because God granted the ability. Now, I've heard provisionists say that this granting is merely that God grants the opportunity. God grants the opportunity for you to believe. Once you have been granted that opportunity through the presentation of the gospel, you have the libertarian free will to believe once the gospel appeal has been presented. They don't see the actual faith to believe as an actual gift God gives so that they will come. It's merely God grants an opportunity. And nowhere in that text does it say God grants an opportunity. God actually grants the faith. He actually gives the faith to believe. Now, in my previous podcast, I talked about Jerome Zankius, who was an Italian reformer who, who wrote the book Absolute Predestination. And this is going to be very interesting for you. Okay, so I want to give you a quote here from Zankius. Quote, Thus St. Augustine argued against Pelagius, who taught. Okay, what did Pelagius taught? This is what Zankius says. That grace is offered to all men alike, that God for his part equally wills the salvation of all, and that it is in the power of man's free will to accept or reject the grace and salvation so offered. Okay, that's how Zanchius defines Pelagianism, historically. And I find it amazing that Zanchius labeled the three major tenets of provisionism and calls it Pelagianism. Okay, so what, what are the three things here that Zanchius argues as Pelagianism? Number one, grace is merely offered to all men. Okay, salvation is provisional. 
It's an offer. It, depend, it depends on you to accept it. It's merely an offer. God has made it available. Number two, God will save all men equally. There's no unconditional election. There's no sovereign decree. And number three, man has libertarian free will to accept or reject the offer. That's basically what, if Jerome Zankius were interacting today with a provisionist, he would label them Pelagian. I'm not saying they are Pelagian, but he would label them Pelagian. So historically, Zankius, Luther, the canons of Dort, Arminius himself, they did not label these views semi-Pelagian, but pure Pelagianism. Okay, what about John Owen, the, the Puritan reformer, the great exegete and scholar? Uh, from the works of John Owen, volume 3, he makes an interesting statement. He says, quote, He that would utterly separate the Spirit from the Word had as good burn his Bible. The bare letter of the New Testament will no more ingenerate faith and obedience in the souls of men than the letter of the Old Testament doth so this day among the Jews. So what's Owen saying? Owen is saying that clearly the gospel appeal or the bare letter of the New Testament cannot produce faith in the souls of men. Instead, the Holy Spirit must do a regenerative work. Okay, So here's the main difference. In provisionism, sinners are not spiritually dead in the sense that they cannot exercise faith unless God regenerates them. They have libertarian free will to respond when the gospel is presented. Once the gospel is presented, they can choose to believe in Jesus or reject the offer. Once they choose, then, upon their exercise of faith, God changes them inwardly to be born again. And I have yet to hear a clear explanation from provisionists on what ontological or spiritual change happens in regeneration. I think they would believe that there's something that, that does change, and they talk a lot about admitting your need for Christ, and they talk a lot about confessing your need for Christ, and they talk a lot about libertarian free will, but what actually happens to a lost person in regeneration? In their view, sinners believe first, and then God responds to their choice with regeneration. Okay, Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrekel wrote The Christian's Reasonable Service. This is in 1700, so we're moving away from the, the original reformers, Luther, Calvin, even Arminius. We're moving into uh, Dutch theologians in the 1700s. So Wilhelmus Abrekel, a great Dutch theologian, he said this, quote, The Word of God contains exhortations and various inducements. Christ is presented as the fountain of sanctification, and it contains promises. All this the Holy Spirit applies to the heart of believers, exercising and activating them unto, uh, unto sanctification. The Word of God being an instrument in the hand of God, apart from which a means cannot be operative. So what he's arguing is just the, the Reformed view that God does use the Word. God does use the gospel appeal. God does bring about exhortations to believe in Christ, but the Holy Spirit applies it in the heart. There's a deep inward work that's done in the heart. Okay, famous hymn writer Augustus Toplady. He preached a sermon in 1770. He's a British theologian, pastor, hymn writer. 
his sermon was called A Caveat Against Unsound Doctrines. And in this sermon against unsound doctrines, he mentions a bunch of false doctrines or errors that he labels as false doctrines. And one of them is Pelagianism. He labels Pelagianism a heresy. And this is what he wrote in addressing a denial of regeneration coming before faith. He said this, quote, The main root of the error consists greatly in not distinguishing between the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. The gospel of grace may be rejected, but the grace of the gospel cannot. God's written message in the scriptures and his verbal message by his ministers may or may not be listened to. But when God himself comes and takes the heart into his own hand, when he speaks from heaven to the soul and makes the gospel of grace a channel to convey the grace of the gospel, the business is effectually done. Now, I like his wording here. The reason I chose this is that I think he, he makes a great distinction between the Reformed view and the Provisionist view. So the Reformed view says that when the gospel of grace is preached, that's not enough. The gospel of grace can be rejected. The gospel of grace is good and it's needed, but it's still not effectual. God must come and do an internal effectual work of the grace of the gospel to regenerate a sinner. So you need the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. The provisionist would say all you need is the gospel of grace. Once the gospel of grace is preached, that message or that appeal is sufficient to enable a sinner to respond. There's no need for effectual or sovereign or regenerating grace in the heart of a person. Okay, let's move to the 1920s. Let's, let's talk about Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink wrote Reform Dogmatic and the Dogmatics in the early 20s, one of the, the greatest uh, theologians of the early 20th century. Um, and this is what he said, quote, For Pelagians and semi-Pelagians, human nature was not absolutely corrupted by the fall. The human will is free in a libertarian sense and remains so ever since the fall. It can freely choose between two options, good or evil. Now, again, what I'm doing here, and you may think this is unfair, I'm just giving you quotes from... Calvinist and how they have historically understood the, the issue throughout church history. Going all the way back to Augustine, to the Reformers, now we're up to the 1920s where you're starting to see the word semi-Pelagian being used. You know, back in, in, in the Reform time, 1600s, 1700s, up to the 1800s, you never really saw semi-Pelagianism used much. It was mainly Pelagianism. Now here Herman Bavink says, Pelagians and semi-Pelagians, how does he define that? The human will is still free in the libertarian sense. So libertarian free will, he would label as semi-Pelagian. Okay, what about Lorraine Bettner in his Reformed Doctrine of Predestination? This came out in 1932. Commenting on 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. Okay, commenting on this verse, Bettner claims, quote, When the gospel of the cross is presented to an unregenerate man, he may have an intellectual knowledge of the facts and doctrines of the Bible, but he lacks all spiritual discernment of their excellence and finds no delight in them. Okay, so Bettner would say, when the bare gospel is presented to an unregenerate person, that person can accept the facts that person can understand the theology. That person can understand what's being presented. But there's nothing beyond that unless the Holy Spirit does a work in the heart of a 
person to bring them to Christ. Okay, Louis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology, okay, famous Reformed Systematic Theology, 1938. Okay, he does not call it semi-Pelagianism. He has a heading called the Pelagian view of sin. Not semi-Pelagian, but the Pelagian view of sin. He writes this, quote, Pelagius takes his starting point in the natural ability of man. His fundamental proposition is this, God has commanded man to do that which is good, hence the latter must have the ability to do it. This means that man has a free will in the absolute sense of the word so that it is possible for him to decide for or against that which is good and also to do the good as well as the evil. Okay, so he says Pelagianism is basically libertarian free will. He writes this, Pelagius' conception of grace was rather unusual. According to Wiggers, and he quotes this book by Wiggers, and the footnote says Augustinianism and Pelagianism, pages 179 to 183. This is um, Burkhoff quoting this guy named Wiggers. He says, this is the unusual thing about Pelagius' conception of grace. Supernatural influences on the Christian by which his understanding is enlightened and the practice of virtue is rendered easy to him. He recognized no direct operation of the Spirit of God on the will of man, but only an indirect operation on the will through enlightened conscience. In this view, the operation of the grace of God was primarily, though not exclusively, external and natural. I find that very interesting. Because what the reformers here, what, what Burkhoff and others would say, is that what Pelagius believed was there was no direct operation on the will. It was merely an outward, natural, external presentation. It's interesting because Burkhoff describes Pelagianism precisely how provisionists describe grace. So sadly, we've seen from Augustine to the Reformers and even Arminius up through the 20th century, theologians have given their definition and their refutations of Pelagianism, not semi-Pelagianism. And sadly, some of the unified characteristics of Pelagianism are very close to what provisionism teaches. Now, you may think I'm unfair by providing all Calvinistic sources. You've just, performed, you've just provided Reformed. Maybe you threw Arminius in there. But let me draw your attention to the most prominent Arminian scholar of our day, Roger Olson. Roger Olson wrote the book, Arminian Theology, Myths and Realities, and he's interacted with Leighton Flowers, and he disagrees with the provisionist view. He, he calls it semi-Pelagian. This is what Roger Olson wrote, quote, Semi-Pelagianism embraces a modified version of original sin, but believes that humans have the ability, even in their fallen state, to initiate salvation by exercising goodwill toward God. He then quotes John Cassian, AD 433. Um, Cassian was probably a semi-Pelagian historically who believed that people are capable of exercising goodwill and toward God apart from any infusion of supernatural grace, an infusion of supernatural grace. Now, that's the key difference in provisionist theology. They do not see any need for an infusion of supernatural grace in the soul of the sinner, whether that's provenient infusion of grace or whether that's sovereign regeneration to overcome the bondage of the will. Both classic Arminians and Calvinists affirm the need for both. Now, some people think that Arminius and Wesley, uh, after those guys, that Arminianism drifted into semi-Pelagianism in the 19th century. 
so Arminians have oftentimes been quoted as being or accused of being semi-Pelagian. And so Olson quotes Methodist theologian William Burton Pope, who argued that Arminianism is not semi-Pelagianism. Remember what um, Arminius had to do during his day? He had to say, we're not Pelagian. Okay, in the 19th century, Arminians had to say, we're not semi-Pelagian. So what did William Burton Pope say? Quote, no ability remains in man to return to God, and this avowal concedes and vindicates the pith of original sin as internal. The natural man is without the power to cooperate with divine influence. The cooperation with grace is of grace. Thus, it keeps itself forever safe from Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Okay. Basically, he argues total depravity, total inability. That's what Arminians believe. We've, we, he's saying we believe this all along. We don't have any ability to come to faith in Christ unless there is some type of supernatural grace that keeps us from getting into the error of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. So Roger Olson gives a helpful litmus test to determine if one falls into semi-Pelagianism. Basically, he says, can a sinner exercise goodwill toward God apart from special assisting grace? And what would the provisionist claim? Well, we don't see an insistence on the need of any type of provenient grace, any type of irresistible or enabling grace, because what they believe is, again, the gospel revelation, the gospel appeal itself is not only sufficiently, uh, not only sufficient, but it actually enables a response. Um, and then, basically... What Leighton Flowers, as he interacts with Roger Olson, says this, Why do so many seem to presume the Holy Spirit's inspired truth, preserved in the Scriptures, and carried by the Holy Spirit's led bride of Christ, is not sufficient to enable the lost to respond willingly to its appeals? He's asking the question, Why don't you, as Arminians and Calvinists, see that basically the, the gospel appeal itself is sufficient to enable a response? Our answer, both Arminians and Calvinists, to the provisionists is, the Bible teaches the bondage of the will. The gospel appeal is necessary. It's even sufficient. But it's not efficacious unless God does an internal work of regenerative grace to overcome spiritual and moral inability. So both Calvinists and Arminians see that any other view they, they both label as... Any, all right, let me just say this. Calvinists and Arminians would say any other view besides what we believe about total depravity would be Pelagian at worst or semi-Pelagian at best. And then Leighton Flowers asked this question, why would we accept the far-fetched claim that mankind is born able to place their trust in the claims of the Quran, but not the Bible? Now this is a canard, this is a false, this is a false dichotomy, this is not, this is arguing apples to oranges. Okay. Is saving faith placing trust merely in the claims of the Bible? Is conversion a mere assent to the facts concerning Christ? I guess if you truncate conversion to mere acceptance of truth about the Bible and not an ontological inward change wrought supernaturally by the Spirit, then there's not really a difference. So a sinner, yeah, can accept the claims of the Bible. A sinner can accept the claims of the Quran. The sinner can accept the claims of the Encyclopedia Britannica. The sinner can understand truth when it's presented, but that doesn't mean conversion. That doesn't mean that they, their heart's been changed inwardly. It doesn't mean that their, their hostility to God's been overcome. It doesn't mean that their heart of stone's been taken out. It doesn't mean that God's opened their heart. It doesn't mean they've been born again. It just means they merely ascended to a set of beliefs. 
Assenting to a set of beliefs is not the same as trusting in Christ. Leighton Flowers also says this, Does it make much sense to teach that mankind is born in a kind of fallen condition that makes them unable to even respond willingly to God's own powerful and gracious appeals to be reconciled from that fallen condition? Okay, He basically denies total inability, saying that mankind is not born in a fallen condition so that when God graciously comes to him with the gospel, you still retain the ability to respond to that gospel. So that makes sense if you believe what the Bible teaches about the nature of fallen man being not totally and morally unable. Just because God makes an appeal to be reconciled does not necessarily mean that sinners have the capacity to respond unless God intervenes. Okay? There's an assumption here among the provisionists that ought means can. And that goes all the way back to Pelagius. Just because God commands something, or God appeals, or God presents, or God persuades, or God instructs, the assumption is, okay, God wouldn't do that unless you had the inherent ability to obey it or to believe it. So here's the burden on the provisionists. The burden on them is to disprove total and moral inability and the bondage of the will from the scriptures. Our view does not have any problem with God making a gracious appeal to be saved. Our view has no problems with that. God makes commands. God makes appeals. God gives imperatives all throughout the Bible that we can't fulfill. So ought doesn't mean can. We have no problem with God commanding things that cannot be done unless he overcomes that deadness to give us the ability to respond. So so basically um, what... Leighton Flowers is saying his point being is that I'm not suggesting the Holy Spirit is not still actively working to draw the lost to himself. I simply, and here's here's an important thing that Leighton Flowers says, I simply deny that his doing so suggests the work of Scripture is insufficient and in and of itself to lead one to faith. Additional revelatory work does not suggest the previous work is somehow insufficient to accomplish its purpose. Again, he believes that, that, there ha- that we, he says we believe in an additional revelatory work on top of just the sufficiency of the Bible. And he would say there's no need for an additional revelatory work. We would call that regeneration. We would call that being born again. We would call that being made alive. We would call that having a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. Yes, it's additional in the sense that God has to do an inward, mystical, supernatural work in the heart of a sinner and so let me give you a couple examples. Again, Acts 16, 14. Lydia, who's the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. So Paul preached the gospel in Acts to her. Paul preached to her. But was the gospel appeal enough? No. God had to open her heart. So two things work together. Paul preached, but yet the Lord opened her heart. So yes, there was the gospel appeal going forth, but the Lord still had to do an internal work in her heart to overcome that deadness so that she could respond to what Paul said. Well, let me give you another example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-6, through 6, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, sinners are blinded from seeing truth. Sinners can't believe in Jesus because they're blinded. Okay, what does Paul do in verse 5? For what we proclaim, what we preach, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with, our, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I say, what does Paul do? Paul preaches. Paul preaches the gospel. 
Paul gives the gospel appeal. He gives the gospel appeal to people who are blind. And you would think that if Paul just preached, that would be enough to enable a response. If sinners are blinded, if sinners have been blinded to truth, all that's needed to overcome that blindness is the preaching of the gospel. But notice what Paul says in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine in our darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the provisionists would say, okay, there's an extra work there. And we would say, yeah, it's not an extra revelatory work. It's a both and. Paul preached the word. Paul gave the gospel appeal. And in addition to that, God came like the day on creation and did an inward work in the heart of a person who was blind to bring about that salvation, to bring about that regeneration. God still had to do an internal work. So we're not saying anything less than what a provisionist is saying, but we're just saying more. So we agree with them that the presentation or the gracious appeal of the gospel is given by God's grace. It is God's initiative. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is sufficient to bring a person to faith. But we say there's more. We also believe that in conjunction, not an extra, but in conjunction with the gospel appeal, the Holy Spirit also has to do an internal, supernatural work of sovereign grace. It's not an extra type of mystical grace. It's an effectual grace that works in conjunction with the Word of God. Historically, this has been called the Word and Spirit, both working together. The Word goes out, the Gospel appeal goes out, the external call goes out, but there still has to be an internal effectual call whereby there's an internal change done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's the conclusion? We can say with hesitation, we could say with hesitation, and I want to be very careful here, that based upon their mere claims alone, provisionism is semi-Pelagian based upon the historical record of how this view has been understood in church history. I think you can make the claim that their view, if you compare it, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying if you compare their view to what's been argued throughout church history, it would be Pelagian at worst, semi-Pelagian at best. But, let's be fair. Because the provisionists do see some type of antecedent grace or a grace coming before, we could say that they're not semi-Pelagian because God does still take the initiative. God still brings grace. God still, man, can't, man doesn't take the first move towards God. God takes the first move towards man. Now, again, it's a definition of grace. In their view, the only initiative, the grace that comes before is the gospel appeal which is sufficient to enable a positive response based upon libertarian free will. Historically, the Reformers and even Arminians would call that semi-Pelagian at best, Pelagian at worst. So here's where the confusion and the mischaracterizations come in. It's because, historically, Arminians and Calvinists have had the same starting point on total depravity, on total inability, on the bondage of the will. Because this has been the historical view of the depravity and nature of man, when provisionists come along and deny that, they, they go outside the mainstream of church history. Because they deny total inability, because they deny the need for any type of inward infusion or regeneration or inward work, it puts them outside the mainstream of what's historically been seen as the need for grace. 
in Arminianism, it's prevenient grace. In Calvinism, it's effectual regenerative grace. But somehow, grace has to come in addition or in conjunction with the bare presentation of the gospel to do an inward work to ontologically change the nature of the person to bring about that willingness to come to faith in Christ. And because provisionists don't see any type of ontological deadness or incapacity of the will morally or spiritually, they see that the bare gospel appeal is sufficient and they uphold libertarian free will, it's led many to label them as semi-Pelagian or Pelagianism or Pelagian. And because they don't affirm these tenets like both Arminians and Calvinists do, it puts them out of the mainstream historically. And so people don't know what to do with them. And so automatically they label them Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. I understand why they do that. Because if you look historically, what I've just taught you or what I've just told you, giving you a historical overview, you would say that based upon the tenets of what provisionism teaches, historically, they're in the line of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. Now, again, we don't want to necessarily label them that because they do believe in the necessity of grace. It's just they redefine what that grace is. And so I want us to be very careful that we don't label them Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, but we have to be very honest and say, historically, when you look at both Arminians and Calvinists, historically, going all the way back to Augustine, all the way back to modern times with Roger Olson, the general consensus among scholars is that the tenets of provisionism lend themselves toward semi-Pelagianism at best or outright Pelagianism at worst. Now, again, the burden is upon the provisionists to prove their point, to espouse their views. And so what I've done in this podcast is just given you a historical overview to make you very aware of what historically the church has believed about these issues. Now, I know this has been a long podcast, and we've gone over an hour, but I haven't done a podcast like this in a while, and, and Part of it is I like to give the historical background. That's what a lot of you like about these podcasts is the historical background and some of the issues related to how it relates to, to modern day issues. And so I do thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments or clarifications or condemnations or, or snide remarks or whatever, uh, please don't hesitate to contact me. You can go to seancole.net to get my contact information. You can go to my Facebook page. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, God bless you. Hopefully this has been a helpful podcast. I've tried to be fair, but I've also tried to be historical. And sometimes when you're historical and you're giving the actual data that historians and theologians have said and you compare it to the statements given by provisionists, sometimes it's hard to reconcile uh, where the rubber meets the road on this whole issue of, of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. So until next time, would the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.